Are you part of the 87% of Americans open to new job opportunities? You've probably visited several job search websites with little or no success. Try www.find.jobs. Find.jobs uses artificial intelligence to match your search with over 8 million fresh job openings. With a more accurate search, you will only be presented jobs relevant to your interests, helping you find your dream job quickly. Bring smart search to your job search at www.find.jobs. Visit find.jobs today. Never before has a designer had so much control over their highly complex creations. Affordable 3D printers and desktop CNC machines put the development of functional physical prototypes and small batch manufacturing into the homes and offices of its creators. Powerful APIs and development frameworks distribute the burden of creating and maintaining the increasingly complex applications that drive our digital products and connect them to the physical world. Some of us might think that this revolution happened overnight, but it didn't. It's a much quieter evolution that has taken place over the course of decades. An evolution of innovative thinking, highly talented and intelligent individuals, and an unceasing desire to question, what if? What if we could live independently later into our lives? What if our machines could learn? What if we had the benefit of public transportation or a chauffeur and the flexibility of our own cars? And hell, what if I could brew just one single cup of coffee and it'd only take 30 seconds? This is your host, Jonathan Morgan. At my core, I'm a human-centered designer, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the show that invites you to ask, what if, and challenges you to understand the why that drives your designs. From nanotechnology to artificial intelligence, from robotics to autonomous vehicles, from game design to social innovation, this program will explore a multitude of perspectives and processes in one of the most exciting and disrupting eras of design in history. Today, I'll be joined by guest Carl Fast, professor, founding member of the Information Architecture Institute, and currently the Director of Information Architecture at Normative Design in Toronto, Canada. Carl is co-authoring a book soon to be released called Design for Understanding. We need to develop a way of talking about design and doing design, and design especially for understanding, where we take a broader perspective. There is a belief in society that what is really shaping our world is technology. And so the important change is happening outside of us. I question that. Just to get started, well, first, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to talk with us today. No problem. I think what you can bring to the conversation is going to really provide some clarity and also give a point of view that I think you've been deeply working in and, and interested in throughout your career. You mentioned that you worked for NASA, right? Well, I didn't work for NASA. I worked at a university in the physics department, and we had a contract with the Canadian Space Agency. Uh, it was an international satellite project. I did at one point work on a project where it was running on, a, on the space shuttle, but I did not. I never worked directly for NASA. But I did work in space sciences, absolutely. So how did you get into the field? It was, it was in the early 90s, and I had finished my undergraduate degree. I was working at, the, at a university, and I studied engineering physics. And I got a job as a research engineer in the atmospheric research group there. This would have been 1994. And so the web had just hit. And this was really interesting. We'd been internet 
rats for a couple of years by this point. We were really familiar with Archie and so on, and Jughead and uh, Waze and all these early internet tools, Gopher. And then I read some stuff about information architecture, which was pretty new at the time, and specifically a book by Lou Rosenfeld and Peter Morville called Information Architecture for the World Wide Web. It was published by O'Reilly in, I think, 1998. And it explained how to take ideas from library and information science and apply it to the web. And basically, organization, navigation, labeling, and search. And this really crystallized everything for me at that time and pushed me into this path out of physics and out of engineering and into this idea that we have huge amounts of information in our life at home, at work, just going to see more and more of this happening. And how do you make that information so that people can find what they're looking for? And then later I began to realize it was a lot about uh, one of the bigger questions was how do you actually work with and understand and use that information, not just find it. This season of Design Everywhere will lay the foundation in this highly disruptive and exciting time for designers. We'll take a look at how we got here today, how to cut through the noise and focus our design efforts on what matters most, how to efficiently and effectively explore the possibilities available to us, and finally attempt to understand where we all want to channel our efforts as individuals and as designers. Today we're going to take a quick look back at what makes good design through the lens of the physical and the digital. We'll talk of the triumphs and transgressions of some of the world's greatest furniture designers and how fast food restaurants fit into the mix. We'll also look through the perspective of a single researcher from Xerox's Palo Alto Research Center who envisioned the technology of today nearly three decades ago. I want to start with a meditation of sorts. Just for a minute, I want you to mute any other distractions. Silence your phone, sit comfortably and upright, with your eyes wide open, take a deep breath and exhale. Take a few seconds to visually scan your environment. Slowly and methodically, rest your attention on each designed object, each thing that a human had a hand in creating. Which of these objects do your eyes gravitate towards? Which fade into the background? Which of these objects triggers an emotion? Which objects invite interaction, provide utility, and serve a purpose greater than its form? Which are merely for aesthetic, things that unapologetically exist to help set the tone of the space? Now focus on a single object. Think of all the people and processes that might have had a hand in creating that object. From inspiration, to concept, to design, to engineering or development, to prototyping, to manufacturing, distribution, to delivery to your home or office. Now think of the raw materials needed to create that object, and all of those who make those materials available. Whether you are fond of the object or not, just appreciate it. Scan your environment again. Which objects extend their utility past the tangible form? These objects connect via invisible networks, communication channels, and sensors to expand utility in ways not possible in the recent past. It might be a smartwatch that constantly collects your physiological or contextual information. It might be a speaker that seamlessly connects to your phone so you can listen to music without wires. It might be a light that turns on by simply telling it to do so. All of this, whether it's something that you can see and touch, 
or is invisible is the product of design and of designers. For decades, design communities have divided into tribes of the physical and the digital. Where digital designers were pigeonholed into being the user interface people, and physical product designers largely plotted along the same path and processes they always have. But the ties have changed. Nearly every category of products are experimenting with connective smart technologies. This is a revolution that requires a reframing of our perspectives as they relate to the process of design. Unlike in the past, the present and the future of product design and development doesn't necessarily have a clear beginning and an end. Products don't launch in the traditional sense, they're born. The day a product hits the streets marks the first day of its life. From that day forward, we must maintain the growth of the product and support its well-being. We must help it to evolve into something that we may not have considered from that day forward. There's a couple of ways to look at this, and I think historically is one of the most useful. The story of humanity in some ways is a story about overcoming scarcity. We just live in a world of scarce resources, and for a long time, food was a scarce resource, and now food is, a, is an abundant resource. It's not evenly distributed, but we do have enough food to feed everyone on the planet. Energy has been a scarce resource, and the Industrial Revolution really begins to take off when energy becomes a much more abundant resource. And information is another one. When you look back in history, we can say, oh, okay, well, there wasn't a lot of information. We just had written stuff, and we had story, oral storytelling, and then we get clay tablets, and then we get paper, and then we get books. But all the way along, it's been this story of trying to get more and more information to reduce the cost of that information of creating it, of publishing it, of distributing it, of organizing it, and of accessing it. And now we're at a stage where information is just incredibly abundant. And that's not going to change, barring some sort of collapse of civilization. We're only going to get more and more information. Then when you flip it and put an economic perspective on it, you realize not only do we have it as an abundant resource, but it's also an incredibly cheap resource. So while we're envisioning how technology might permeate even the most mundane of products, let's take a step back and think about what value it is that technology provides. Computers, applications, the Internet of Things, and even the smallest and seemingly insignificant display on a product is not providing technology. It's providing information. So the value is not really the technology per se. It's the information that the technology provides. The thing is essentially communicating to us what we can and should do with it. It's facilitating transactions of information. The reality is, this isn't just found in digital design. It applies to the physical, too. We're probably all aware of some of the great furniture designers and designs of the 20th century. Designers like Charles and Ray Eames. The Eames lounge chair in Ottoman has an updated and modern take on the English club chair with an early example of ergonomic elements combined with the more traditional mix of leather and plywood. Isamu Noguchi, his Noguchi coffee table with his biomorphic sculptural aesthetic and almost no straight lines is instantly recognizable. Don Chadwick and Bill Stump's Aeron chair utilize novel materials, green design, and outstanding ergonomics, including an adjustable lumbar support, to create a chair specifically designed for an eight-hour workday. A new Aeron chair is said to be produced every 17 seconds. Mies van der Rohe and Lily Reich's Barcelona chair was designed to complement the design of van der Rohe's German pavilion, a modernist structure built for the 1929 International Exposition in Barcelona, Spain. 
Its look was ahead of its time, with its padded folding structure and spring-like legs. Noboro Nakamura's Puang chair, created for Swedish furniture giant IKEA, merged Scandinavian and Japanese styles beautifully. Some of the real innovation may be in its flat-packed, easy-to-ship packaging and easy at-home assembly. That last point is debatable. Thomas Lee's Adirondack chair was specifically designed for relaxing outdoors. Its simply constructed sitting surface is made from 11 flat wood boards and features a laid-back seating position and generous armrests to hold drinks. And Nathan Alexander's classic, albeit beautifully generic, folding chair. It was designed to virtually disappear when stored. His design spawned literally thousands of variations and opened up modular seating to the masses. While these are all, to varying degrees, representative of the essence of what we value in design, beauty, each is an elegant solution to an age-old dilemma. Sitting on the ground or a rock is uncomfortable and impractical. These designs provide both form and function, beauty and utility. At a glance, you know its purpose, it invites you to use it, and invites you to sit. Now let's look at another celebrated 20th century designer, Philippe Stark, and more specifically, his ghost chair. Stark is known for his disregard of utility and usability in return for sculptural appeal. The chair is all about its clear plastic design, but looks almost too delicate and uncomfortable to sit on. The armrests are unusable, they're too short and sharp at the ends, and the skinny legs look like an average person would snap them into pieces. The fact that it is see-through and almost appears weightless is a sight to behold, and any engineer would marvel at the molding complexity. But its seemingly only utility is the fact that the chair stacks. So what is a $430 chair that invites you to look, but not to sit? Is this design, or is this fine art? My belief is that design serves a purpose more fundamental than mere aesthetics. It's there to serve its user as well as evoke emotion. Now let's look at furniture design that probably does not sit at the top of your list when you think of great design. The seating at a fast food restaurant. A visit to your nearest Taco Bell, McDonald's, or Subway reveals a much different scene than the pristine setting of a modern home or office. The seating is usually fixed and just comfortable enough for you to enjoy your meal, but not comfortable enough for you to linger too long. That's by design. The slightly hard-edged dining area is physiologically and psychologically designed to just be pleasant enough to eat your quick meal, but not cozy enough to want to stay too long. There are no private booths, soft and warm textures or lighting, soothing music, or any other cues that trigger the at-home feeling that one gets at finer establishments. What you get are wide and open lines of sight, large traffic flow lanes, no privacy, and that feeling of being on display for all other customers to see. The seating angles and surfaces are designed for an upright, literally slide-in-and-out experience. Naturally, we want to move away from that as quickly as possible, making room for the next customer, if only for the next 20 minutes or so. After hours, the fixtures, surfaces, and layout make for easy cleanup. One could practically hose down the area each night and get ready for the next day. And that's what they want and need to successfully run this type of high-volume business. Carl, can you briefly describe the premise or concept behind Design for Understanding? This is a really critical question. What do designers do? Let me break this down in terms of how I tend to think of the design problem or the understanding problem. And in sort of like the classical way, 
is the more newer or emergent way, the thing that is arising because of our technology. So the traditional way that we think about understanding, I think, is that as the designer, the burden falls to you. So you have this thing that you are designing. And let's, let's take a fairly simple example. We live in a world where our digital technology, right, we don't just experience information in this static form. We experience it through computational tools. That means that it's interactive. And we are on a path here where that interaction with information is becoming more sophisticated. You know, it used to mean that using a computer meant you had to get up and walk over to a table and sit down and turn on the computer and use your keyboard and your mouse and a big screen. And now you're like pulling it out of your pocket. And eventually we might just wear it on our glasses or you are increasingly people are using it with Siri and Alexa in the home. So, you know, you take an example of something like who won best picture in 1977. It used to be like, okay, get up, walk over, use the computer, type it all in, go through IMDb, etc. Now you can just ask Siri or Alexa and it will give you the answer. Now that's not really an understanding problem, but it is an example so much as it is an example of how we've lowered the cost of interaction. We've lowered the cost so much that this makes it possible now for us to achieve higher levels of understanding. And one of the keys to a lot of this is gonna be interacting with information and that way that we interact will facilitate and help us to understand more and more. I think that it's a mistake to think that designers should be doing it all and that the role of the designer is to make understanding simple and instantaneous. The role of the designer is to bring about the kinds of understanding that are appropriate for that problem. And sometimes that means making it simple and instant. But a lot of other times, it means making it so that you can achieve the level of understanding that you really need. And that is often an interactive process that may take place over a long period of time. An example, right? Planning a vacation. You can't just do a search, look at a screen and go, oh, there's my vacation, done. There's a lot more to be involved or choosing a health insurance plan or finding, you know, deciding on which school you want for your child. Uh, all of these and many, many more involve understanding problems where there's more to it and you can't make it and collapse it down to here is the answer presented for you, packaged all up like, you know, like a Big Mac. It's not going to be that easy. In order to maximize the utility of a fast food restaurant, designers must understand what it is that makes for an efficient dining experience while creating an atmosphere, an environment that doesn't come off overly cheap or manipulative. So it's their challenge to balance the needs of the restaurateur and the customer. That's a design challenge that requires the mind of a great designer. In my opinion, a greater designer than the aforementioned greats, because you're likely to be met with ambivalence at best when bringing up in conversation that you designed the mildly comfortable seats at a rallies. Truly great designers check their ego at the door, they look forward to what is necessary and best for the people they serve. When we come back, we'll explore a similar scenario that has been taking place in the world of digital design. Those of us that have lived through the recent evolution of digital design, from DOS interfaces to early windows to the desktop web, mobile apps, and so on, know that much of our time was spent designing to grab and keep attention. We were asked to provide IKEA-like utility while at the same time, Philippe Stark-like aesthetic. We live through what might be seen as the neediest time in the history of design. We're consistently tasked with standing out in an exponentially more crowded marketplace than just a decade ago. 
How many times have you been asked ambiguously to make it pop or provide a sense of surprise and delight? We measure success on the amount of time the user's eyes were fixed on the design, the number of clicks or taps they made, the number of impressions and keystrokes recorded. But what about the value every second of attention provides? Are we giving back equally to the people that use our designs? In general, my answer to that question is no. But history is catching up to us. What's happening now is that technology, and in turn our expectations as both designers and users, are evolving at a fevered pace. The design community and society in general are quickly transitioning from demanding a novel or even entertaining experience to gushing over the ease with which we can yell, Alexa, order me toilet paper, while still sitting on the toilet. In many ways, people are demanding their attention back. Attention is reserved for only what is most important at that moment in time. Only what matters most to the person based on their needs at that particular moment. Simplicity and seamlessness are required from the things we create. It's no longer an afterthought. It's a foregone conclusion. It's the measure of your success. What does the designer evolve into? And so, so part of this is about a big shift that I think design needs to go through as, as a whole. Right now, design in general has been going through a growth phase. Right, We're seeing a huge number of people who are moving into the field in one form or another, largely through the, uh, the rise of user experience design as a sort of broad umbrella term. And we're seeing large organizations which are recognizing the value of importance of it, bringing it and building large in-house teams. However, generally speaking, design has been overly emphasized, really focused on artifacts, on creating the thing, and the good news is that as part of this shift towards user experience design, we have taken a much more human-centered approach to that. So usability studies and user research are now part of the designer's toolkit. And you just can't really, in my view, I don't think you can really truly call yourself a designer these days unless you have those as part of your skill set or are part of a team where that skill set is really a critical piece of it. Much of that work still is about this application, this device, this object, this visualization. We need to think, we need to develop a way of talking about design and doing design, and design especially for understanding, where we take a broader perspective. Bill Mogridge, when he, as you know, he was trained as an industrial designer and was one of the people who originally argued for the idea of interaction design. And that came about because he was working on one of the early laptops and I think it was the first laptop even. And he tells this story about working with it and shaping the, you know, the box and the keys and the aesthetics and making the form all nice. And as he began using this computer, he realized that what was really interesting wasn't the box itself. It was the space in between the person and the box. And that is only more true today because now we have the space between you and the computer and there's much more information on the screen, but you also have the smartphone and you have voice control devices and we are seeing more and more uh, computationally aware devices providing us with access to more and more information with new and interesting ways of interacting with it. Augmented reality and virtual reality are gonna be big tools, but it's not gonna be just about the technology that's out there. The real question for designers has to be about the space in between you and that thing. And so we sort of move from this idea of design being about the artifact, that thing that we are constructing out there, that we are shaping, 
and more about seeing how all of this stuff, person, the information, the tools and the artifacts, and even our environment around us, and how all of this forms a system of understanding, how we interact with all of these things, how we coordinate stuff across all of these devices. You know, as I'm sitting in my office and we're having this conversation and I look around, I just don't have a computer and a mouse, but I have a tablet and I have a phone and I've got paper and I've got pencils and I've got the desk and I've got a whiteboard and I've got sticky notes. And my work, right, involves not one of those things, but all of those things. And it doesn't involve them all simultaneously, but it does involve this artful, coordinated dance Part of it is skill that I have developed and learned over time, but this is something that designers need to work with, and we need to understand how people use all of these things together. So in some sense, it comes less about creating the artifact and more about designing a system or creating an orchestration around all of this. And that can lead to understanding. That's like the more, that's where we're moving the goalposts to in the long run. This is the signal that design and the definition of the designer are evolving. That the roles of digital design and the designer do not rely solely on a single sense, sight, or gesture, tap. The modalities which we will interface with the world will continue to evolve too. I, and many others, predict that within the next decade, our interactions with smartphones and tablets will decrease exponentially. Attention will move away from our screens and back to our environments and the myriad of objects they contain. In many ways, digital design needs to take the advice of its historical product design counterparts. You don't see a chair screaming at you to sit in it. It's just there when you need it. The systems that drive our products will eventually become so smart that they will eliminate the lion's share of interactions we have with them. I can't take credit for this prediction. It was made long ago by people much smarter than me. I think a lot of my perspective on design and technology was transformed when studying the work of Mark Weiser, chief scientist at Xerox's famed Palo Alto Research Center, PARC for short. He is credited for coining the term ubiquitous computing, where our things will talk to each other more than we talk to them. He not only predicted the Internet of Things, he helped create it. When he spoke in terms of technology, I think it applies more broadly to design. He wrote in his influential 1991 paper, The Computer for the 21st Century, the most profound technologies are those that disappear. They weave themselves into the fabric of everyday life until they are indistinguishable from it. Just think about that for a second. The internet was barely a blip on the radar for the majority of the world, and he was leapfrogging it. I believe this is what designers like the Eames yearn for, to create the things, that create the atmosphere, that create the feelings and emotions no one can live without. Like Weiser said, they weave themselves into the fabric of everyday life until they are indistinguishable from it. I think ultimately, that is what every great designer strives to achieve. But if the recent past tells us anything about the future, it's that the things we design will become increasingly complex. The systems that drive our creations will afford enormous power to the designer, but at the cost of thousands of hours of work, making the complex feel simple. The people using our designs will demand an increasing level of detail, personalization, and perceived simplicity when interacting with what we create. So Carl, do you feel there is any limit to how simple we should make the use of a product? 
Are there times or situations where complexity is necessary? I want to add on to that. And I don't want it to come across as everyone is their own unique little snowflake. And because there are certain types of understandings which are, you know, which should be universal, but or more broadly understood and that are going to apply to a wide range of people. But let's separate between the idea that I want to intuitively know how to use this and what are the next steps or the next possible steps and how I can accomplish those with this particular tool versus I want to understand the information that is in front of me. I want to understand it and achieve a level of understanding which is appropriate for my goals and my task. Right? We have a lot of tools which are not usable and need to be more usable. But just because they're usable and intuitive doesn't mean that the understanding happens immediately. The understanding is going to be a process where you're working through and with that information over time to develop understanding. So when I teach, when I teach classes and workshops, one of the most common things that people will say to me is, am I doing it right? Or is this the right answer? And you will hear this all over the place. Think about, just tune your, your ears towards the word right. Go into meetings and you will hear people, we want to make the right decision. And I feel that increasingly in a world that is so filled with information, so many possibilities and is increasingly complex, that this feature of our language is really leading us in a poor direction. Because so often, There is no right answer. There is a right answer for some of the simplest questions, but the answer is much more about better and worse and understanding trade-offs. And you take, for example, like the healthcare debate in the United States, and without trying to be political about this, a lot of times when you hear people talk about this, they will say, we want to get this right. And that to me is a mistake because that assumes or implies at the very least that there is one right, single, best way to do healthcare in this country or anywhere. But what's really important is understanding the trade-offs between the different kinds of insurance systems that one could develop and what are the goals and how do we balance those. So this is why design can't view understanding problems as just, or at least the most interesting ones as a matter of saying, okay, if I, as the designer, do my job, understanding will be simple and easy and intuitive and we'll get to the right answer and we will give people that. Instead, designers need to shift their mindset where that is part of what they do. But what they're doing instead really is creating a system that leads people to finding better answers that are more appropriate for people based on the amount of time and energy and knowledge that they have and and it is contextually appropriate for them. So understanding is a relative term. For us to design the products that are easily and instantly understood, we will first need to understand the people who will be using them. We talk a lot about designing things that are intuitive to use. Unfortunately, intuition is also relative. Something can only be intuitive as it relates to that person's unique experiences. We need to understand the people we design for to effectively create something of value. We're tasked with creating things that will provide tangible value to users in their time of need, then fade into the background until needed again. This requires us to place our egos in check, open up our ears and eyes, and understand what people need from us and our designs. 
what we talked about today isn't in itself new or unique. No matter what the medium, channel, or method of design is, we need to create value for our users. Without value, it's not design, it's fine art. Great design creates an environment and an atmosphere. It creates a sense of emotion, satisfaction, or accomplishment. It leads us to the behaviors that will benefit us most. It's there for us in the time of need or desire. It waits for us patiently for the opportunity to serve with aesthetic beauty and ambient simplicity. I'll leave you with Mark Weiser's words, but I'll replace one key word. The most profound designs are those that disappear. They weave themselves into the fabric of everyday life until they are indistinguishable from it. Now take a few seconds to visually scan your environment again. Slowly and methodically rest your attention on each designed object, each thing that a human had a hand in creating. Which of these objects do your eyes gravitate towards and which fade into the background? Which of these objects trigger an emotion? Which objects invite interaction or provide utility and serve a purpose greater than their form? Now think about a thing that you rarely notice but couldn't live without. That, to me, is the epitome of great design. Next week on Design Everywhere, we'll explore the topic of focus in our design efforts. We'll see how it is that we're consistently asked to envision the future to create something that people will not only purchase, but also love. But we can't even predict what will make us happy in our own lives. I'll ask the rhetorical question, where do you find inspiration for design? Does it come from within, with your deep and incredibly unique understanding of the world? Or does it come from the people for whom you design the products? This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you've been listening to Design Everywhere, the show that invites you to ask, what if, and challenges you to understand the why that drives your designs. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review. It really helps. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you listen. A special thank you to our executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael Dialoya, our producer, Bridget Coyne, our audio engineer, Eric Coltnow, our music director, David Allen Moss, my co-conspirators, Renee Pullen and Mike Trace, our guest, Carl Fast. Keep an eye out for his upcoming book, Design for Understanding, Design Everywhere is a production of The Front Porch People. To learn more about this and their other podcasts, please visit thefrontporchpeople.com. Thanks for joining us. Until next week, keep your eyes and ears open. Your next big idea might be right in front of you. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. 
Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.